So last week, Adam brought us through the whole Torah and showed us how it, it brings us to the brink of the promised land. Uh, this morning, we're going to read Exodus, Exodus chapter 1, which shows the journey of the, the people of God into uh, slavery in Egypt. Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Jacob was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt, with, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Thank you, Peter. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take a look today at slavery and your deliverance from slavery, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our minds to the gospel of our salvation as you recorded it in history and in scripture in the Torah. I pray that this would help us to understand our salvation in Christ Jesus, whose blood we apply by faith and in whose blood we entrust ourselves to your final Passover. God, please glorify yourself, revealing the Lord Jesus Christ by your Holy Spirit. Use me as a willing, if sometimes, oftentimes inadequate servant to the task. I pray for this church. Please build us up in the faith, helping us to love one another deeply and truly and practically. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Please be seated. As Peter said, we're in the middle of a sermon series that is is really taking a step back. We're taking a big picture view. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the whole Bible. We did the first two chapters of Genesis, the last two chapters of Revelation. And the whole goal was to, to show us that what we had lost by sin in the garden, we are more than going to receive back from God by His grace in the new creation. And then last week, we took a a look at the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. So we had perfect paradise in the garden, and then in Genesis 3, we sinned. And one of the grave consequences for that sin, which we call the fall, is exile. He cast the man out of the garden, and he cursed creation with thorns and thistles. And we saw that by the time we get to the end of the Torah, however, it seems as though God is working against his own curse. Rather than thorns and thistles, we see God bringing his people into a land that's flowing with milk and honey, which is like a new Eden, though it's not as good because there's still war, there's still sin, there's still death. But last week, where we concluded was the promised land is a picture of the end of the story, which we had seen the previous week in Revelation 21 and 22, the new creation. That that land that God promised to Abraham is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth where there is no more war, there is no more sin, there is no more death, there is no more crying or pain or sorrow, but just joy and fellowship with God in sinless perfection. Today I want to take a look at a second consequence to Genesis 3. So last week we looked at at the first and most notable consequence, which is exile from the garden, which ultimately is an exile from God forever, condemnation in hell. But there's a second consequence to the fall in Genesis 3, which the Torah also seeks to reverse. So just as the Torah is God's history, his story of uh, uh, reversing the exile from the garden, so also this second consequence God is working in the Torah to reverse. And these two things become the pillar of the gospel. Jesus Christ came to deliver us from condemnation, deliver us from exile, deliver us from hell. That was last week. The second consequence to the fall is slavery. And we read about this in Romans chapter 6, that we were all born into this world enslaved. Enslaved? I didn't think I was enslaved. Yes, you're enslaved. You're born into this world as a slave. What kind of a slave? Well, according to Romans 6, we are all born into this world as slaves to sin. And so in picture form, God takes his people historically, but this historical experience is a picture of the greater slavery that is common to all humanity. We are all enslaved to sin until we are set free by Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus say? I've come to give you the truth, and the truth shall set you free. That's the gospel. The gospel is about setting us free from slavery. And so God takes his people into a literal historical enslavement in Egypt. And what Peter read for us in Exodus 1 is a picture form of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, when they took the fruit and ate it, they were enslaved. Enslaved not to Pharaoh in Egypt, but enslaved to sin 
and their taskmaster became the devil. As that's a great human problem that is shared by every person, man, woman, and child that has ever lived. In order to understand how this motif of slavery works its way out in the Torah, I want us to go back to what we sketched out two weeks ago, the big picture view of the Bible. I've already alluded to this, but I want you to see it in graphic form behind me. We said that the beginning of the Bible is Genesis 1 and 2, where there's no sin, no death. And then the end of the Bible is Revelation 21 and 22, as I said, where there's no sin, no death. So you have creation, new creation. That's the beginning and the end. And and, and that tells you something about the function of the Bible. The Bible, everything in the middle from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, is trying to get us from the beginning to the end. And what we talked about was we're not going back to the beginning. We're going to something greater. Uh, The new creation is greater than Eden. And I, I can't rehash that all for you right now. But the middle of the middle of the Bible is the life of Jesus Christ. He he constitutes the central point of God's redemptive story. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the, the biography of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, they represent the middle of the Bible. But then in the middle of the middle of the middle, the center of redemptive history, the center of the Gospel, the center of the Bible, the very center of all reality in which everything that has ever been or ever will be orbits around this central foundational fact is the cross of Christ. It's the middle of everything. And we cannot understand what is true and not true, what is real and not real, unless we put it in relationship to the cross. In our own lives, the closer you get to the cross of Christ in your life, the closer you get to the center of all reality. I want to show you something astounding about the Torah. You know, th- th- this big picture view of the, of the Bible is not something that God was making up on the fly. Before the foundation of the world, before he said, let there be light, God, God had stretched out this whole plan making the crucifixion of his son the central point of all things. And he begins to sketch out his plans for the gospel in the Torah. Now look how similar the big picture view of the Torah is. The beginning of the Torah is the same as the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. We're in Eden. The end of the Torah, which we talked about last week, is Deuteronomy 34. And, And Deuteronomy 34, we are poised with Moses on the edge of the wilderness looking into the promised land, looking into a new Eden, And that new Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey, is but a picture of the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. And I'm repeating it because I want it to drill down into our minds and into our hearts so that we get it. I want this to just be so obvious to us. What then is the middle of the Torah? Well, everything from Genesis 3 to Deuteronomy 33. And we see very much the same story in the Torah as we do in the Bible. We'll get into these parallels in a moment. 
What's the middle of the middle of the Torah? Well, the middle of the middle of the Bible is the life of Jesus. The middle of the middle of the Torah is the book of Exodus. Why? Because that's the biography of Moses. Moses is a central figure. It's not that he himself is, is uh, equal to Christ, but he's a picture and a servant of Christ. And it's through Moses that we get this picture form of the gospel. What's the middle of the middle of the middle of the Torah? Well, the middle of the middle of the middle of the Bible is the crucifixion of Christ. So the middle of the middle of the middle of the Torah is that which points most directly to the cross of Christ in all the Torah, the Passover. In both places, we see the blood of a lamb. That picture there is the doorposts and lintel of a house smeared with the blood of a lamb. Therefore, we see in the Torah and in the Bible the same beginning. We see in the Torah and the Bible a very parallel ending sitting on the edge of the promised land, sitting on the edge of the new creation. Uh, when we get to the end of the Bible, we're, we're still waiting to go into the promised land. And that chapter has not yet been written, though we have a vision of it. We are waiting for Joshua, even now, Jesus, to take us into the land that God has promised, the new heavens and the new earth. In, in, in the middle of the Bible and in the middle of the Torah, we see sin which introduces death, which introduces exile and slavery. That, that's, the, that's the human story. That's the human drama. If somebody ever asks you, what's the meaning of life? The meaning of life is that God sent forth his son to free us from slavery and take us out of exile back into the land that we had forfeited. That's the meaning of life. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story of the Torah. We see sin, fall, exile, slavery, and death. But on the other hand, both in the Bible and in the Torah, we see God's gracious, salvific intervention. If God had left us to ourselves, we don't make it to Genesis 4. Human existence ends in a murder-suicide just outside the Garden of Eden. But God's gracious intervention sustains Adam and Eve, brings forth another generation after another generation, and we can trace the line of humanity from Eve to Mary, Messiah. That's all by God's grace. Everything that is good post-fall is because of God's grace, His lavish grace. We deserve nothing but exile and slavery. Now look at the parallel of the middle of the middle. So the middle of the middle, we have the Gospels of the Bible. That's the middle of the middle of the Bible. The middle of the middle of the Torah is the book of Exodus. Just take a look at these parallels. Uh, we have in, in the Torah, the book of Exodus is all about establishing covenant with God. What are the terms of this covenant with God? God delivered them graciously out of slavery. Now, what are the terms of the covenant? What are the Gospels all about? The fulfillment of that covenant established in Exodus. But more than that, Jesus at the Last Supper says, this is the blood of the new covenant. 
The Gospels are all about God sending forth his son to give us a new covenant, which is patterned on the old covenant, fulfilling the old covenant, but it takes us beyond the old covenant. The old covenant took a group of people out of slavery in Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. The new covenant takes humanity out of slavery to sin and takes us to a new heavens and a new earth. You see the, the symmetry, but the, the, the vast greatness, the superiority of the new covenant. But, but both, the middle of the Torah and the middle of the Bible, are both talking about covenant on very similar terms. When you're doing your reading through the Bible in a year, you get to the second half of Exodus, and all of a sudden, it's as if God throws the brakes on. And you get a very detailed description of the tabernacle. And you don't just get it once. You get it twice. Here are my, my commands for how I want you to build the tabernacle. And it's very detailed. And, and uh, to our shame, may I say, it feels very boring. We just can't wait to get past the second half of Exodus. Unfortunately, on the other side of the second half of Exodus is Leviticus, which is not a lot easier. But, but it's very detailed. You get the commands for build the, the, the tabernacle, and then you get the, the fact that they fulfilled it. And it's almost verbatim repetition. This is what was commanded. This is what was done. But do you know that that is so central to the Torah because the tabernacle is central to the Gospels, which is central to, to the Bible? Because what are we told at the beginning of John's Gospel? The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. See, the tabernacle is so important because Jesus is the tabernacle of God. The tabernacle is where God meets with humanity in a gracious way. The tabernacle is a place where a holy God meets with a sinful humanity. And that is most fully present in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He is the tabernacle. And, and you know, he didn't temple among us because he moved about just like the tabernacle. And wherever Jesus went, there went the glory of God. Just as in the wilderness, wherever the tabernacle went, there went the Shekinah glory, the manifest glory, the cloud and the pillar of God's presence. This is, the parallels are striking. Let's just take a look at the life of Moses, how parallel they are, uh, his life was to the life of Jesus. Matthew especially makes this point. In Jesus' life, he, he, he escapes a massacre of children by Herod. Herod wants to kill all the children. What does that remind us of? Pharaoh wants to kill all the children. Moses is delivered that by going down the River Nile, and so is Jesus as his family uh, flees to Egypt. Jesus was baptized as a man. Moses led Israel's people in th through a national baptism in the Red Sea. Jesus, after his baptism, went into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. Just as um, Moses, after he, the people were baptized through the Red Sea, spent 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years for Israel, 40 days for Jesus in the wilderness. And then after that wilderness experience, what does Jesus do? He goes up a mountain to deliver the sermon from the mount. What does Moses do? After he goes through the waters, he goes up a mountain and he gets the law from God and the Ten Commandments. He comes down and he gives the law to his people. Jesus is a new and better Moses. 
And then the most striking parallel between the Gospels and the book of Exodus is that which we have defined as the middle of the middle of the middle of both, the blood of a lamb. The blood of a lamb that rescues a people from slavery. In Exodus, the blood of the lamb delivers a people from literal slavery in Egypt, hard bondage, in a much greater, more profound way the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as I've said, delivers humanity, all who would believe in his name, from a greater slavery, a slavery to sin, whose taskmaster is the devil. In order to understand the gospel according to the Torah, it's essential that we see these parallels. The gospel is not a new story in Matthew. The gospel is the fulfillment of an old story, an old pattern that God established through his people. And so I want, for the rest of this morning, what I want us to do is to take a look at 16 very specific details where God was very careful in his institution of the Passover because each of these details points forward to the gospel of our salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. In order to do this, I'm going to read Exodus 11 and Exodus 12. Now, I know this is a lot of Scripture to read, but I've been convicted lately that um, in 1 Timothy 4 that we went over in the fall, it says, devote yourself not just to the preaching of the Word, but devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And increasingly, I am feeling uh, bound to read more, not less, more. And, and I hope, my prayer is that we as a church, we can't expect this of everybody out in the world, but I hope that we as a church, we will have an appetite that is more hungry for the Word of God. After all, uh, when we read Scripture, it's God Himself that is speaking to us. When I talk about Scripture... God, by His grace, speaks through me, but only by way of commentary of that which He has said. And so, by reading Scripture, God speaks to us. Would you open your Bibles, then, to Exodus 11? And as you do, please stand. What we're about to read is the center of the Torah. Everything that God is doing in the first five books of the Bible orbit around these two chapters. And these two chapters are a shadow, a picture of the center of all reality, which is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So as I read this, I want, I want us at the very forefront of our minds and our spirits to be recognizing how important these chapters are for understanding the gospel that we profess. Let me just pray for us as we in, embark on this adventure into the center of all reality. Oh God, we are not accustomed as a people in our day and culture uh, for the reading of this much of your word. For that we seek your forgiveness. But more than that, Lord, please help us more than bear it 
Give us a hunger for it. Help us to cry out for more, not less. Now, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand these chapters. Help them to become the lifeblood of our life in the church. Would they give us such great confidence that the gospel is true. You've established it long before you sent your son to tabernacle among us to shed his blood as our Passover lamb. So now, Lord, speak to us and help us to hear. In Christ's name, amen. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I'll go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, that he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not let, 
you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but everyone needs to eat. That alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your homes. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel of the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. When he sees the blood of the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Egypt, or over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. The people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. 
for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, take your herds, as you have said. Be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel also had done as Moses had told them, for they also had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." The people of Israel journey, journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would like to keep the Passover of the Lamb, let all his males be circumcised. Then they may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. This is the word of God. Oh God, I pray that you would bless the reading of your scriptures and apply it to our hearts. Help us to see the gospel by your grace through our faith. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In the moments remaining, all I want to do is point out 16 parallels. You might say, well, that's a lot. Well, I'm not going to get into them too deeply. But the whole point also is to see the cumulative effect of this. The whole point is to say, wow, this is not just sort of kind of like the crucifixion of Jesus. This is a blueprint for the crucifixion of Jesus. So that's the goal here in the moments remaining. Number one, slavery in Egypt is equal to slavery to sin. 
And that's what we started in Exodus chapter 1. Just as Israel was enslaved, so humanity was enslaved in Genesis 3. Number two, we had, if we had read Exodus all the way through, we would have seen that this was the tenth plague, that nine other plagues had happened, each one accustomed to a particular Egyptian god. This is the climactic plague. And, and, and likewise, God disciplines humanity throughout history, warning us of our rebellion. But we are a stiff-necked people. But we don't, we don't take God's corrective discipline. We don't see the signs. And ultimately, the tenth plague is the final plague. The death of the firstborn is a picture then of God's final judgment. Now, God couldn't give us a picture where he annihilated all of Egypt, and so he took the firstborn of every family. Uh, but, but this is the point. It's not the firstborn of every family that will die in the final judgment, but every person who has not applied the, the blood of the Passover lamb to their house will be killed by the destroyer. That is what Revelation 20 talks about as the second death. Everyone stands to be found lost in this final plague of humanity at the final judgment, which is the second death, which is eternal conscious punishment, condemnation in hell. That's what the death of the firstborn is a picture of. Serious. Number three. How do we avoid this final plague? Choose for yourself a lamb without blemish. A male, a year old. The selection of a lamb without blemish is the selection of a representative for us. A representative man. A man with uh, a year old. A man in the prime of his life. A lamb a year old, the meat is tender. That is the prime time in the life of a lamb. Take a lamb, a, a, a human representative in the prime of his life. A lamb without blemish is a lamb without sin, a representative man among you without sin. This is what it takes to be delivered from this final climactic curse. What it takes is one man, a lamb without blemish, a man without sin, a man uh, one year old. I know he was 33 or thereabouts. A man in his prime to be struck down. Number four, select this lamb on the 10th day. The selection of the lamb took place on Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. That was God choosing for himself a lamb. Come into the city. And we're told that the lamb was not to be slaughtered until the 14th day. Inspect this lamb. And we see Jesus interacting in the temple precincts being inspected. Why choose a lamb on the 10th day and only slaughter the lamb on the 14th day? Make sure that this is a lamb without blemish. For the last week of his life, from the triumphant entry until the time that he died on the cross, Jesus was inspected by the religious leaders in the Lamb to see if they could find fault in him. And if you read all the, uh, the Gospels in that time, they were trying to find fault in him. And when they couldn't find fault in him, they knew that he was a man without blemish, 
a man without fault, and yet they found reason to crucify him, and they had to bring in false witnesses. But there is a parallel between the last week of Christ's life and these days of inspection of the selected lambs. Slaughter the lamb on the 14th day. Jesus was crucified on Passover. The slaughtering of the lamb is the crucifixion of Jesus. That's number five. Number six, God's very specific. Slaughter the lambs at twilight. What he means is, at the time of the evening sacrifice, what time is that? Three o'clock in the afternoon. At what time did Jesus die? What time did he give up his spirit? Into your hands, Father, I commend my spirit. At twilight, at three o'clock in the afternoon, at the time of the evening sacrifice, when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. Number seven. Apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts and lintels of your house. We do this as saints every time we go and we approach the cross of Christ by faith and we reach to the cross and his blood is dripping from his head and his hands and his side and his feet. And by faith we reach out to touch even but the feet of our Savior and we grab some blood by faith and we apply it across the doorposts and lintels of our lives. We must apply the blood of the Lamb. Otherwise, it will have no effect for us. How do you apply the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? You call out for salvation by faith. You believe in His name. You apply His blood to your life. Number eight, the lamb is to be roasted, not boiled. This is a picture of propitiation. Jesus Christ, as He hung on the cross, was roasted in the wrath of God. Not slowly boiled, but roasted. Every moment that he hung on the cross, the full wrath of God fell on him. So that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Roast this lamb. Number nine, the lamb was to be roasted whole its head with its legs and its inner parts. Later on, we're told, don't break a bone of the lamb. Well, remember, it was getting late and the religious leaders didn't want there to be the abomination of crucified men to spoil their Passover. Little did they know that the Passover was happening right there. Get those bodies out of the way because we have a Passover to celebrate. We've got a Sabbath. We've got uh, unleavened bread to celebrate. And so they, they demanded that the bodies get taken down. And so uh, the executioners went to break the legs of Jesus and the two thieves. They broke the legs of the thieves because then they couldn't hold themselves up and they'd suffocate quickly. And they came to Jesus. 
think he's dead? Don't break his legs. So they put a spear into his side, which is interesting. Where did God create Eve from? From the rib of the man. And the church literally comes from the side of Christ, pierced on the cross. Blood and water flowed out. Not a bone of Jesus was broken. And so Jesus, God says, don't break a bone. Eat this lamb carefully. Number 10. The lamb was to be eaten that night and all its remains burned up. If you can't eat it all, well, that's too bad. You should, you should eat it all. But if you can't, burn it up. Burn it up and then bury it. This reminds us that Jesus was buried on the first day of his crucifixion. That was really important. And he rested on the Sabbath in the tomb. And he came back to life on the first day of the week. The day that God started his new creation. Day one. And so bear, bear, uh, eat all of this lamb on that day and then bury it. It's a picture of the burial of Jesus Christ that day. Number 11, God says, there's a curse coming. I'm going to kill the firstborn of every house. But if I see the blood on the doorposts and lintels of a house, I will not permit the destroyer to enter into that house. I will pass over. My wrath will pass over. My judgment will pass over. And no one will die in that house. That's a picture of the final judgment. You see, the ultimate Passover takes place. It started on Golgotha's hill, but it will be consummated when we are standing before God and books are opened and we're all found guilty. And that's when people will be condemned to the second death. But for those to whom God can see the blood of the Passover lamb applied, His wrath will pass over us and He'll say, come in to my new creation. Come in. There's no wrath for you. There's no condemnation for you. There's no judgment for you. There's just life and exodus and freedom and promised land and new covenant. Number 12. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days, starting on day one of the Passover for seven days. Until the 21st day of the month. We have two reasons for this. Well, three, but two initial and then a third. Number one, we're told that God didn't want them to put leaven in the dough because they wouldn't have enough time to allow their bread to rise. Leaven is the yeast that allows a bread to raise. He says, my salvation is coming so immediately you can't wait around for your bread to rise. That's how quickly I'm going to deliver you from slavery. So don't put any leaven in. I want you to be able to cook this bread quickly. Number two, we're told that seven days there to eat leavened bread. When I was going through that, did you notice, wow, he's just repeating this over and over again. Seven days, we get it. He repeats it, repeats it, repeats it. No leaven, no leaven, no leaven, no leaven, no leaven. Don't eat leavened bread. They ate unleavened bread. Like he's just repeating, repeating, repeating. What is the point? Our response to the Passover should be unleavened bread. Well, what does that mean? 
right? Because the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts on day one of Passover and goes for seven days. Seven marks a complete amount of time, meaning a perfect response. So our response, or Israel's response to their Passover was seven days of unleavened bread. Our response to the true Passover, which is the crucifixion of Jesus, is a life devoted to unleavened bread. And, and Paul tells us what this means. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. We are the bread. As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, the festival of unleavened bread, that seven-day festival. It, not with the old leaven, that is the old life, the leaven of malice and evil and all kinds of sin, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. How ought we respond to the Passover of Christ? Lives of unleavened bread, that is, lives where leaven in the scriptures becomes a picture of sin. Lives where we are rooting the sin out of our lives. And so the implication here is too, God's salvation comes quickly. You can be an enemy of God, a hater of Christ one moment, and then in an instant, the blood of Christ is applied to your life and you're a child, a full heir of the inheritance and all the promises. It's not a process. It doesn't take a lot of time. You believe in your heart, you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved, and it's instantaneous. You were a slave, now you're free. And now, live the festival of unleavened bread, responding to what God has done in your Passover lamb, the Christ, with lives of sincerity and truth. Number 13. Pharaoh was broken by this plague. He was broken by the blood of a lamb. If you had told him before the first plague, or even after the fifth plague, you know what, we're going to kill some lambs and put their blood on our houses and you're going to let us go, he would have laughed. Seems foolish, doesn't it? What? The blood of a lamb has that kind of power? Never. But by the time you get to final judgment, oh, the blood of the lamb, the power of the blood. Pharaoh was broken by the blood of a lamb. He released the slaves. The blood of a lamb, foolishness to the world, but to us, the power of God, releases our bondage to sin and forever untethers us from any controlling power of Satan and his demonic army. The power of the blood. Number 14, Israel was plundered or Israel plundered the Egyptians. We often overlook this, I think. God says, I want you to go and ask your Egyptian neighbors for all their wealth. Now, that would have seemed foolish too. But by this point, Egypt has been broken down by all of the plagues. This is what Jesus means when he says in the Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the earth. It looks like the rich and the powerful, they're the ones who get the spoils of this world, isn't it? We're just, we're just nothing. We're cast aside. When we pursue the lamb, then we just give up all of that. What God wants us to know in the plundering of the Egyptians is he's going to take 
from the rich and the powerful and the arrogant of this world everything and give it to us. The rich and the powerful who hate Christ, they'll die the second death. And we will plunder this world. And all the riches of this world will be given to us in the new heavens and the new earth. Number 15, we're told that a mixed multitude went up with them. It wasn't just Israelites, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that that left in the Exodus. It wasn't just Israelites that applied the blood of the Lamb, but there were some Egyptians that were listening. There were some Egyptians that said, I just, I am convinced by the last nine plagues that these slaves are with God and God is with them. And when they heard that anyone who applies the blood of the lamb, that the Lord would pass over them, there were some Egyptians that put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts and lintels, and it was a mixed multitude, Egyptians and Israelites that went up out of Egypt. Likewise, Jesus Christ came not just for Israel, but for us Gentiles too. If we apply the blood of the lamb, the king of the Jews... That's another thing. When Pilate put the king of the Jews on the, on the cross, he knew what he was doing. He, Jesus was the king of the Jews. That's why he was being crucified. And he was raised back to life to be the king of the Jews. And the king of the Jews, says the Bible, is the king of all nations. So if you're willing to allow the king of the Jews to be your king, you are part of the mixed multitude that will come up out of bondage into the new creation. Finally, surely we're not going to talk about circumcision to end this sermon, are we? Yes, we are. You have to be circumcised. You have to be circumcised to partake in the Passover. Yeah, but isn't the book of Galatians all about circumcision is nothing? You don't need to be circumcised? Well, you need to be circumcised in the fullness of what it means to be circumcised. It's only those whose hearts have been circumcised that can celebrate the true Passover of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for your heart to be circumcised? Without getting too graphic, circumcision is the cutting off of a piece and throwing it away. The circumcision of your heart to which this circumcision of the flesh points forward to is the cutting of sin out of your heart in an act of gracious regeneration by the Holy Spirit so that there is no longer any sin in your heart. It's only those who are pure of heart that celebrate the Lord's Passover. Oh, are you pure of heart, but don't you still wrestle with sin? Sure you do, but not in your heart if you've been circumcised. It's in your flesh that you continue to wrestle with sin, but in your heart you are pure and holy. And if you have been, if you have applied the blood of Jesus Christ to your life, the Holy Spirit has circumcised your heart, and you can look forward to celebrating the fullness of Christ's Passover when the wrath of God will pass over you. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The Lord's table reminds us of the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. 
And it was a Passover feast. He says at the beginning of it, Oh, how I have longed to celebrate this Passover with you. How long, Jesus? How long have you desired to celebrate this Passover with us? 33 years? No, you, didn't, you couldn't think of that straight when you were zero years old. Uh, 25 years? How about thousands of years? Ever since Jesus established the Passover in Exodus 12. Oh, how I have longed to celebrate this Passover with you. And so we are going to celebrate this Passover with him right now. I'd like to invite those who will be passing out the elements to come forward. I'm going to pray for us. Then we're going to hand out the bread. And I'll have a few more things to say. Let me pray. Oh God, as we celebrate this Passover, I pray that we would find great joy and what you have accomplished at the center of the Torah and the center of Scripture. And that the cross of Christ and the Passover of our Lamb would become the center of who we are. I thank you, Jesus, that you long to celebrate this Passover with us because we are honored to celebrate this Passover with you. We are humbled. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have applied the blood of Jesus to your life, then please join us in celebrating this Passover meal.